Welcome to the Portland Real Estate Podcast, Oregon and Southwest Washington's number one show for real estate news and information. Without further ado, here are your hosts and a couple of guys who as busy realtors and successful brokerage owners know a thing or two about real estate. Steve Nassar of Premier Property Group and Joe Fistolo of Soldera Properties. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Portland Real Estate Podcast, episode number 143, where we are unpacking the best of masters in real estate. I'm Joe Fostolo with Soldera Properties, and I'm the admin of Masters in Real Estate, which is, many of you know, a, a private exclusive real estate group for realtors and real estate related professionals, where we talk about big, big, big topics. And the best of masters is when we take the most heated discussions with the most remarks and the most emojis and the most comments, and we unpack them a little bit more for you live on the podcast mm. while you guys are, are welcome to mention your comments on the live stream. So to ring us in is my buddy and co-host of Premier Property Group, Steve Nassar. Hey, Joe. Thanks for making time today. I'm excited to go into some of these topics. And one thing I wanted you to share, I want to share with our listeners and viewers is, I mean, I didn't always know this. I just found this out. You as an admin of masters have a way to actually go into the back end and see the most active posts. So in the past, when we did this show, I would kind of just, I would spend a couple of hours just scanning through, looking for things with the most comments, but you taught me here recently, you shot me an email and go, Hey, here's the ones with the most views. And you showed me that, that really cool link. And so it makes it, it, first of all, it makes it easier, but second of all, it makes it foolproof. Like we truly do have the hottest topics. We're not guessing they are ranked in order by activity and engagement. So we're going to have some great stuff to chat about today. Yeah. Now I have the list of what we're talking about, but I don't have them organized. So uh, I will do that right now. I'm I'm just making a, a comment here just to post your questions and comments here. Well, you did you, so did you. So we now we've asked them twice. So please give us your questions and comments as we go through this. So, okay, let's get right into it. One of the things we wanted to talk about, and it there wasn't one post about this. There was actually a bunch of posts about it. And as we're talking about it, let's give our viewers and listeners a little bit of guidance as well on how to better engage on masters. It's about the love letter ban. So the official word is, if you guys recall, so I mean, to kind of give our, our listeners the rundown on this, last year, Oregon... The state of Oregon was the first state in the nation to say, look, love letters are bad. They, they leave room for discrimination. Therefore, we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're going to assume that all that's being done is people are picking who's going to be the winner based on protected classes. So we're going to ban them. And your buyers can no longer communicate pretty much in, in any way, because what other way would you communicate with the sellers? I was not a big fan of this. I thought it it was overreaching, to put it simply. It took a lot of meaningful rights. I mean, that, that that's really what this comes down to is rights from both parties to to communicate. 
and to understand, you know, I mean, as a seller, if you have a special property, maybe that's been in the family for decades and decades, I mean, you know, you, you may want to know what they, what the buyer likes about the property, what is special to them about it and vice versa as a buyer, you know, you, you want to be able to articulate that so that you have upper hand to put it. And it's not just about dollars and cents and money down and, and things that maybe some buyers don't have an advantage on. So it went into effect in January. Well, there was a lawsuit out of a real estate firm, I believe in Bend, who challenged it in federal court. And thankfully, the feds still have a little bit of common sense, unlike maybe some, some of the local you know, thoughts and beliefs in our state. And they, they actually said this is a discrimination. They first did a stay on it, I believe is what it's called, or you know, they, they temporarily put it on hold, saying it was violating freedom of speech. By telling a buyer they cannot talk to a seller, they're violating freedom of speech. And then in the last month or so, it's been permanently blocked. And from what everything I read here, it has now the state and it has walked back everything and said, okay, we're fine. We're, 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 we're settling and we're not going to try to proceed forward with this. So, so there was, there were several posts about this. Tamara Kodu, I hope I'm saying that right. She posted one of the things I would have loved to have seen. I didn't see a post that says, what are you guys going to do moving forward? And by all means, this would be a great way for our listeners to engage with us. Now type in, as we're talking about this, your plans moving forward with regards to love letters. Have agents gone right back to how it was before? Are they now, you know, using them less? Is it, you know, I, I we would love to hear what that was. There wasn't a great post about that. There was just a lot of posts sharing articles and links. Joe, what are you seeing and hearing? I mean, what's your what's your take on this? Well, I'm not a super fan of love letters. I know there's brokers that absolutely love them and some that don't. And what don't you like, Joe? I understand. So the love letters, it was repealed because the higher appellate court said it goes against the First Amendment rights of freedom of speech, which people have the right to say whatever they want within reason, right? You can't threaten the life of somebody and, and, or slander someone w- without repercussions, but holistically it's, you know, first amendment rights. Those rights do not dictate how we present our offers. It does not dictate w- what the seller is supposed to do. It's not a legal document. And so our job as realtors is to let our clients know if you're working with buyers, Hey, we can write a love letter. Sometimes they work. Our sellers, hey, you know, a lot of people are going to send these letters. Do you want to read each one? If you're in a crazy 15 offer transaction and everybody has a typed, double spaced, you know, one page love letter with a couple pictures, do you and your sellers really want to take the time to read every single one? I can't make that decision. I ask my sellers most of the time, they want me to just do a little summary. And just like we do for every offer, we talk about price, terms, condition, contingencies, what makes this strong, how well I know this lending institution, if it's going through a bank, how well I know this particular lender, if it's somebody local. I also go and unpack the reputation of the realtor bringing the buyer. 
and the reputation of that company, because holistically, I need to present everything in its best light, which is the highest obtainable price your sellers can get and these people's ability to close without any major explosions along the way. And so I'm going to be completely transparent. I'm going to say, hey, here's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then with these letters, most of the time I ask the sellers, hey, do you want to read all these word for word? Some of them do. Some of them are like, nah, not really. Just can you put that in a summary too? Okay. Young couple, they have a three-year-old kid, one on the way and a golden retriever. There you go. This is their first house or this is their second house. That's really all it is. Because if you think about it, it is a freedom of speech. There's no obligation that the seller has to read it. No obligation that I have to read it to them. It's their decision. And these letters are designed to skew their offer to get the seller to accept their offer over somebody else's offer, which is just as strong, right? So arguably, there is a little bit of prejudice that can come into play. Oh, this is being sold to a family instead of a single person. You know, I understand both sides, but just from what I need to do is to protect my sellers and get them the best deal. Normally, that's just a lot of white noise in the way, and it takes away from the matters at hand, which is how am I going to get them their goal? How am I going to get them the most money, their rent back that they need, and the ability to close so they can move on to the next chapter in their book? So those Mm -hmm. are my two cents, but I think you like them a lot, don't you? Well, I mean, first of all, they were taking away our rights, which is insulting to us. Like we're like we're not capable of understanding what discrimination is and reining that back, right? Like, you know, educate us as an as a as an organization, as as the National Association of Realtors, educate us. Tell us what not to have in the letters. Okay. We're not idiots. You don't have to just slap our hands and take it away. Okay. So that part is a little frustrating. It's a tool in your bag. It allows communication. Let me ask you a question. Why wouldn't we ban FISBOs then? I mean, for crying out loud, you're standing belly to belly, buyer to seller. Like, how's that not bad? You're seeing their race. You're seeing their family. You're seeing everything. So to me, it was lip service. It was the state of Oregon saying, look at us, country. We are the forward, left-leaning, you know, we're going to be the trendsetter in fighting discrimination, look what we're going to do. And they're going so far in that direction while not acknowledging the other issues that are problematic, like FISBOs. Ban FISBOs then. Say, we never want a buyer and a seller to meet, ever. Because when they meet, they're going to know who what they are. We don't ever want them to communicate. So in my mind, I almost was concerned that that could create more FISBO opportunities if there was a property where they did want to ensure that it made its way to a special person who's going to love it the way they loved it. And, you know, maybe that would, we'd be a a disadvantage as, as agents. Right. So that bugged me about it. It's it's disjointed. The whole thing is really disjointed. So this is already covered on the 
seller level through the listing because all the fine print in the listing, it's your commission, the, the date you start, the date it expires, all this other stuff. And then I think it's about like eight subtexts down. It says, you will not discriminate uh, based on race, religion, sexual preference, any of that stuff. It's all there on the listing. So they already agreed to it. So the, the ban on love letters and First Amendment rights, it's, it's already redundant because they already signed off on that saying, no, we will take the best offer independent of all the other stuff that comes along with it. But then the curveball is so many people for security and protection and everything else. They have camera doorbells. That was the other thing. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. Keep going. The the cameras inside, you know, the Xfinity, it tells you the weather, but there's also a camera there. It looks like a little mini iPad. So Mm -hmm. if you can watch them walking around your house and listening to their conversation, and you could see if it's a family and their nationality, and you can make your own deductions, isn't that sort of discrimination? So you don't get to see a letter. You just get exactly. to watch them and hear them yeah, live exactly, on your video. Exactly. That's the, that to me is the lip service. Yeah. You are yeah. doing this big thing that is real shiny as a state. And you're saying, look at us. We're so forward thinking. We're so doing such a good job of discrimination. Yet there's all these caveats that make no sense. Like if somebody wants to discriminate, they absolutely still can through that. The other part of that, Joe, is is names, Google, Facebook, right? Like you see the name on the offer. You just got to do a quick search and go, what does this person look like? What, what's their social media like, right? If sellers want to discriminate, they're going to be able to discriminate. Short of blacking out names on contracts and making them wear paper bags when they go visit the house, right? Like we talked, we joked about that, right? Like that show, The Masked Singer. Yeah. Like like make them wear a full body suit when they go to the house. So you have no clue who it is, no clue what color they are, what their, you know, protected classes are. And that obviously is never going to happen. So why throw this in, take away our power, insult us, tell us that we're we're not capable of understanding discrimination. And also what really bugged me about this was I truly believed that love letters are the one thing that help probably the people that need the help the most. Okay. And, and, and whether that's, you know, minorities or what I think they historically, I don't think this is, you know, I don't think this is you know up for debate. Historically, they're the ones with the least amount down that are struggling to buy housing, right? And so now by not taking away the love letter where they can they can project what they love about the property, why it speaks to them, what you know their plans are for that backyard and you know that special garden you've had there for 20 years. By taking that away from them, now it's just about dollars and cents and who has the most money down and the most money in my opinion, the minorities get hurt the most in that fight. So it's not to say that we do a love letter on every transaction, but man, it's a nice, it's a nice club to have in your golf bag, right? If, and when it makes sense. And also, I don't even know that we've returned to exactly how it was before. When this came down the pike, I think we went to a format on my team where we started doing more in the body of the email, like talking about, you know, why the clients liked the house versus 
asking the client to write it, we were kind of shaping things a little bit more. And because we just got used to doing that, I don't even know if, if we've done a love letter since it came back, but at least we know we can, right? And on tomorrow's post here, there was kind of a little bit of everything. Jacob Hemstreet said, I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about love letters, but I'm glad they're back. It's one of the few tools that can help young buyers in this market, which I agree with. Tamara Presley said, I'm glad they're an option. I mean, and that's really what it comes down to is it's it's an option, right? There were a lot of posts. So if it was posted one time, we probably would have had 250 comments, yeah. but yeah. it got posted like four or five times recently and, and each posted quite well. Definitely a passionate topic, but I think if you look at it holistically, even though it's 2022, right, there are some ignorant people in this world. And I think if people are going to make decisions based on their own prejudices, they're going to do it with or without a love letter. And there's no changing those people. Hopefully, everyone will get educated and everybody will be able to look at someone for their beating heart, not color of their skin or sexual preference or any of that stuff, and look at the offer unobjectively. So with this ban on love letters, if they're not willing to cross out like the person's last name spelling, right? I don't think there's any mystery that I'm Italian and anyone would know that by seeing my name. Cameras and audio listening devices and houses they're going to know that way. So the people that are prejudiced, regardless of they agree to accept something on the merits of the offer alone, those people probably won't. And, and that's really sad to know. Mm-hmm. But changing this love letter with or without isn't going to stop the seller from camping at their neighbor's house and watching everyone who walks in and out of the house, videos, audio, Searches online. Deducting, yeah, deducting what they can see from the spelling of their name. You can Facebook stock people too. Funny story, but I sold my sister's house many, many years ago and I just got a wild hair and I searched the buyer's names on Facebook and they were bragging to all their friends that, hey, we found a house. We made an offer on this house. We lowballed them, but we would have paid, <laughs> we would have played paid full price, but we just want to see what they come back with. So thanks for that, buddy, because we're coming back at full price. It was a different (laughs) different market from today. But there's so much information out there to think a seller is going to completely go Mm -hmm. into a transaction for what happens to be most people's largest material asset, completely blind. It's never going to happen. It's yeah, it is 2022. They're going to find out something about who these buyers are. And anyway, it is kind of a nice option, right? It's another tool in our bag of tricks that we can pull out and a listing agent that allows it to be presented and it resonates with the seller in a positive way. That could be the difference of those people getting a a house or not. It was just a weird, it was, it was a weird path that housing was going down saying the two parties can't communicate. Can, Can you imagine if you, I mean, if you were selling something small, like a car or gosh, you know, some lawnmower, if, if you couldn't communicate with them, you couldn't tell them. I mean, who, who knows if, if this had kept going, right. If this had been allowed, who knows if another law was going to come down the pike saying never before closing, can they meet or talk? 
which I'm not saying is a, something we want to try to do on every transaction, but who knows if we have a complex property and there's a question about something, who knows it better than the seller? So it was just over overreaching is what I didn't like about it. So, well, ho here's what I'll tell you, Joe. I'm hopeful this is the last time we have to talk about this on the podcast. I know we've talked about love letters. And I know we've talked about the subject before. And so a lot of this is repeated, but this is basically, hopefully, the finality of this. I'm very pleased with the outcome. And yeah, so there we have it. Let's move on to the next. Well, next hey, topic. real quick to round this out. So there's been so many posts on this. We're sort of in a little bit of la la land. Hey, this got banned January 1st, 2022. It got repealed. And there's some brokers out there that, like, well, technically it's legal. I mean, what do we do? What do you do? And that's what I want to know. What do the members of Masters in Real Estate who are realtors, what do you do when you get a love letter from this point forward? Do you send it to the seller, let them read it, let them decide? Do you paraphrase it? Do you include it in the offer and get initials on it? What do you do moving forward? Because we've kind of talked about everything about the legality. Let's talk question, about Joe. the practicality. Yeah, it's a good question, Joe. There's two goalies. There's two goalies, right? The buyer's agent and the listing agent. And this is where they were trying to take our power. They were saying, we are idiots. We are discriminatory. We can't police this as agents. And, and I disagree with that. So. As the buyer's agent, if your clients put together something that is talking too much about you as a person, that's problematic. Advise them, talk about the property, talk about the garden, what you're going to plant there, talk about the fire pit and the great summer evenings you're excited to spend next to it. Talk about the soaker tub and, and how you, you love to take bubble baths. I mean, talk about those things and speak to the seller, compliment them on their great taste, their choices and finishes, stroke their ego, make them realize that you are someone who appreciates their choices, their decisions, what they've done, how they've maintained it. I think that will be very effective while not crossing any lines with protected classes. So, so you have two lines of defense. You've got the buyer's agent going, oh, hey, buyer, maybe change this up. Don't, don't put that in there and talk more about this. And then even if that buyer's agent doesn't do that, you've got the second line of defense, which would be the, the listing agent. And as a listing agent, if you get a letter and you think maybe, maybe it's crossing a line, Talk to the buyer's agent. Go, hey, I want to share this with my sellers. I, I, I think this could be helpful, but I don't think should this be in here. You know, this it's two professionals having a discussion, right? Does that make sense, Joe? Yep. I think we move to the next one. We've talked we do through have one that. Comment. Let's yeah. Let one quick comment. Megan Kavanaugh seems like we should ask sellers if they want to read these letters. If they do, let agents writing offers. They can submit a brief letter from the presentation to the sellers. I agree with that. I agree with that, right? Let let the sellers decide. You you said, Joe, that sometimes you have sellers and they're like, I don't care about the letters. Well, I, I would probably tell the buyer's agents that. I don't know the legality of having to present them. Do you, Joe? I mean- If, like if, if, it's, if it was something sent to the letter and I'm their representative, I'm going to tell them that it's there. Yeah. But 
Look, you know, as well as I, you're, you're working with buyers and they're on their fifth house and they're making their fifth offer. And what they do is it's like, dear Mr. and Mrs. Seller, we absolutely love your house. And oh, wait, what's the new address? Tap, 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 tap. And they put the new address and it's the same letter, right? So it's, <laughs> it's, it's meant to persuade. Oh, we love your yard and we love enough yeah. g- generic stuff. It's, it's a mail merge. I, right? I know, I know, so I know. I feel obligated to ask the seller, hey, we got a letter. What do you want to do with it? And yeah. a lot of times they're just like, well, give me the, give me the elevator speech. Give me the 30 second rundown of, you know, what it's about. You, you know, you made you, you just made me think of something, Joe. It reminds me of reviews, right? You can tell fake reviews because they're like, you know, Steve Nassar gave excellent service. I would recommend him to any friend, right? Like if a client, a future prospect client of mine read that, they're not going to be compelled like, oh, gosh, you know. But if it's real specific, specificity is key. If it goes, you know, Steve Nassar took my call at 8 p.m. on a Sunday. We talked this, you know. And and it just goes on and on like that with specificity. That's a compelling review, right? Well, the same is true here. I mean, if you are doing that, and I I agree with you, Joe, there are times where maybe they've made 10 offers on 10 houses and they use the same darn letter with a couple quick tweaks. I don't think you're, I don't think you have an advantage there. And I don't think that's going to get the job done. But if your buyer is heartfelt and puts it on there with specificity and genuine effort, then I I think it can be helpful. So let's move on. Next subject here was, oh boy, this is a good one. (laughs) Transaction coordinators, copying them. Daniel Anderson. April April 26th. Yep. Yes. Yes. Dear agent with a transaction coordinator. I'm happy you have a TC. Truly, it's a great way to conduct business and create work-life balance. However, please don't ask me to CC or TC on every email. My job is to manage my side of the transaction, not yours. Right now, I have five active sales, all with their own TCs. It is hard to keep them all straight. And if I don't CC a TC and a transaction goes sideways, then it's not my fault. Again, I will manage my side of the transaction and happily do everything to make sure you get what you need. You just need to forward it to your own TC. And in case you're wondering, I don't expect anyone to CC my TC. I'll do that myself. Thanks. This got a ton of comments, Joe. Ton. And it started out, unfortunately, in my opinion, but it started out with a lot of amens and yeah, thank you. uh, So good. Agreed. But then some of the others started speaking up and going, yikes, what happened to cooperation? What happened to working together? Is this the worst thing that's ever been asked of you? What's your take on it, Joe? I don't know if I remember you well, talking in the thread. Well, because I posted this September 23rd, 2019, which also was a very big post, you know, over 80 comments and the headline is, when is your team, not my team? And I'll read you some highlights and then I'll tell you my take. It says, occasionally at the beginning of a transaction, we get asked to send all emails and texts to the lead agent, their assistants, their TC, their buyer's broker, their Skyslope transaction email address, and whoever else is on their team. Basically tag everyone on their side. The question is, when is someone else's team not your team. What really is your responsibility? 
Do you try to comply with the, the wish? And if somebody really wants you to tag 10 different people, isn't it their obligation to make like a team email? So they just say, hey, send all your correspondence to this team email and it'll go to everybody who needs it. And just a whole bunch more open questions that I have there. So what I think about is there's a lot of brokers out there and you hire a TC. And I believe you should. I believe every broker should hire a TC because it just gives us the freedom to do what we're licensed to do, which is get signatures on listings and sales. So you should have a TC. If you don't, the the de facto result of not having a TC is you are the TC. So the other broker has an obligation to get the documents to you. But if you have a TC, I think it's a great courtesy if you get it to that broker as well as their TC, because guess what? Their organization and their efficiency helps everybody, right? It helps it be a smoother transaction. Am I going to remember to include everybody on the text? Am I going to remember every single email that I send them? I I need to figure out the name of their TC. Probably not. But I do make a point to go into my DigiSign. And the moment they say, hey, copy our TC on the stuff you send, I add them right then and there. So anytime I'm sending anything out for signatures where someone needs a copy, that broker gets it and that TC also gets it. As far as all the other people in their life, it doesn't matter. That's their TC's job who I already copied on that. So let the TC go to work. I'm doing my courtesy by sending it to the agents or if it's, if it's a team, sending it to you know both agents as well as their TC Everybody else that needs it, their lender, their buyer, their, you know, title, that's their TC job. That's my TC's job. But I think it is a great courtesy. I just think some people ask a little too much of the other broker. Hey, email these five people every time you send me something. That seems Mm -hmm. a little ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Hey, I had something interesting happen on a transaction that just went into escrow this week. And I want to share it with our listeners. So I'll even say the name of the agent. It's, oh, it's, it's on Robin's Realty Group, Ivana Tense. So our listing is Gateway Drive in Happy Valley. We accepted an offer Monday and I don't see Heather copied here, but so I don't know if this is Heather's team or not. But anyway, right after we went into escrow, she sent an email and it's, let me just read it to her. The, the subject line was, Bro in all capitals, broker communication thread. Then there's a dash, and then it's the complete address of the listing. Okay. And it says here Hi, Steve and Jennifer. Jennifer's my co agent. I am Deanne's TC, and we are excited to be working with you. So the agent is Deanne at Robbins Realty Group. Sorry. And we are excited to be working with you on blank, blank, you know, Happy Valley in, in Oregon. This is the start of our broker communication thread. That sentence is actually highlighted in yellow and underlined. We use communication threads to keep all communication in a transaction in one place. This helps keep each informed and up to date throughout the entire transaction. Please save this email 
as we will use it. This is our primary way to communicate with you. If you have a TC or anyone else you would like to be included on this thread, feel free to add them. This will help keep everyone informed. And then she goes into when the inspection is going to be and a couple things. So the idea behind this, and we, we, we copied our TC on this, was whenever you need to communicate, you find that thread and you just reply all to it. I forwarded that to my entire team. And I said, let's talk about this at our next listing meeting to see if that's something we want to do. There was a lot of communication about this. I mean, I want to be clear, Joe, I'm not saying that we as agents shouldn't try to have a team email or do something like this and make it easy for people and that we should just willy nilly be going, hey, copy this person or copy that person. But what I didn't like was just the amount of hostility towards this tiny little ask as a favor, right? Just this this pound your fist down to hell no, we won't do this. I mean, I'm like, is that really the is that really the direction and attitude we want to have as agents is we will never do a favor for one agent? Now, to be fair, to turn the, the tables, as the agent who has the TC, maybe you should do a, them a favor and, and help make it easier, maybe through a method like this, maybe through a team email. But if you don't, that doesn't give the other side the the right to just be so you know difficult. There was a lot of also sometimes on these threads. We, I've seen these before, by the way, Joe. Obviously, as you as you said, you've done it before. Sometimes there there becomes hatred towards teams in general, which which is you know its own rabbit hole where they say I hate working with teams for this reason or that one reason. I actually commented quite a bit on here and I think we all covered it very well. This, this thread had 193 comments. That's, that's way up there. I think it was number one on the rankings, by the way, when you. Oh, uh, was it? Yeah. What's the overall consensus? Like people for it, against it. I would say it's close to 50, 50, 50%. Like this one person, one person, I I kid you not. Whitney Peterson said, thank you. Like 50 times. Literally, the entire comment is thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, like 50 times. Yeah. So apparently that person's for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Another, you know, another one says, love this, love this, amen. But then it's, then once the other side started talking and saying, wait a minute, that's doesn't seem to be a very cooperative way to do business. Then that side gained momentum and other people chimed in and agreed. One of the things that I didn't like was they they said, I'm so busy, I can't remember your TC. And and my, you know, one of the things I said is, do you run your business off of memory? Like, what if you're doing a transaction and they want the fiance copied, right? Hey, guy's buying the house, but can you copy my fiance or my dad? Hey, my dad's involved. He's gifting me some money. Do you just go off of memory or do you have an organized system where you have all the people on every transaction that you need to be managing? So as well as um, how they're connected, like connected by an address, an ML number. Yeah, that's what I do, because all these different TCs out there, you have different names and they're like, hey, please copy so and so on all of our correspondence. And you're thinking, you know, you, you have you know, a dozen pendings at the moment. And it's like, gosh, what's that person's name? Oh, I can search by address or ML number. Or I can search by that broker's name and find out. 
And there's a pretty easy solution. So the nice thing is the true professionals in the industry know what it's like trying to juggle all of these deals. And it is a great courtesy if they do remember to copy your TC as much as they appreciate it when someone copies their TC. For the rest of the world that doesn't like that, and it's not my job and I'm not doing that, well, that's when you like take matters in your own hands. You create a group email and say at the beginning, when you correspond with me, please use this email for us. And that way you have a distribution list where it goes to everybody you needed to get to, whether that broker is willing to share it with everybody or not, they send it to that one address and it goes to your TC and the people on your team. And sometimes in this business to protect yourself, you need to take uh, matters into your own hands. For example, there was a trend about a year ago that there's a lot of vacant houses on the market, but they're never vacant, right? The, the listing agent always puts owner occupied because they absolutely want to make sure that people call, they know who's going in, they lock up the place. And by stretching the truth and saying it's owner occupied when it's not, might make people a little bit more professional than showing it on a whim. Or, you know, the other thing is, is unadmitted access. You can put a CBS code to make sure lockboxes don't work for everybody unless you have this secondary code. So I think the protective thing that someone who's adamant about you send me the email and send it to everyone on my team, if you're not having success with people voluntarily cooperating with you and doing that, send documents at stevesteam.com or whatever your email is, Joe's team at gmail.com or whatever, and have them send it there and it'll automatically go to everybody. Mm -hmm. I went ahead. Some people are probably going to look at our comment thread here and go, why the heck did he copy and paste an email on a transaction here? But I went ahead and copied and pasted that entire email, including the subject line, so that if anyone wants to grab this idea and run with it to in the interest of making their transactions go smoother, you would identify all the people that should be copied and then you'd create some type of email like this with them all on it. And that would be the one that everybody would find and, and reply all to or, or you know work off of anytime there's communication. So I thought that was pretty clever. And by the way, it was I didn't realize this until just now that it's Heather Robbins's company, someone from her company. So, and we just had her on our last podcast and we were very impressed with a lot she brought to the table. So what a cool idea from them. Let's move on, Joe. Next one, Jessica Lan Wang posted this. All of a sudden, lots of agents calling about my pending listings price and details because they're putting together a CMA for their seller asking if I can share information. Probably like two or three a week since the listing went pending. Trying to be helpful, but it's getting annoying. How come this practice has become so popular? Do you remember this one, Joe? Yeah, I'm searching for it right now. Um, Jessica Wang, if you do a search in Masters of her name, you should see it. Yep, I got it right here. Wow, 111 comments. Wow. Yeah. Here's what's happening. Let me un unpack a little bit here. First of all, what she's talking about is 
in this crazy market that we're in where things are selling fast and and your closed comps can hardly keep up. And, and granted, we we all know, and we'll talk about the market here in a little bit. We all, all know that perhaps this is changing under our feet. But for the last couple of years, it's been such a crazy market that sold comps really aren't even accurate anymore because what's pending is much higher than those. So people trying to advise their sellers and price their property correctly, we're just trying to test the water, see, hey, you're pending. We know you went pending immediately. You probably had multiple offers. Can you tell me anything about what price you're at? Do you ever do this, Joe? Yeah, all the time. Okay. Absolutely all the time. And you get those calls as well? Yeah. So I've had calls from realtor friends that say, hey, I'm going to be selling my house and I'm too close to the situation. You know the area. Can you tell me a ballpark? Which matter of fact, I got to get back to these people quickly, but I do that. And then people are like, Hey, look, it's upside down day. You went on the market. You're off in three days. Did you get a dozen offers? Was it a nuclear price? Did it go a hundred over 70 over? What can you tell us? Because the comps don't make sense. And I think this is the hardest time to, to price a house in history, because you price it based on the comps, but it can go, you know, 100 to 185,000 or more over list price. And then some of them sit for a month and getting a little bit of help when you find the exact comp for what you're about to list and talk to that broker and say, hey, can you give me an idea? I always give them an idea because we're not supposed to say the price the seller accepted because if the deal crashed and it was below asking, everyone would know what they accepted. All you have to do is offer that price. You're giving away kind of inside you information. Touched on something really important here, Joe, that I want to talk about because there's a lot of comments here saying you should never tell what your price was. Okay. I agree with you when you're under asking price. Okay. If you're listed at 800 and we, we haven't been in this market for a while, um, maybe we're going back to it, but if you're at 800 and you get a 750 offer and your seller takes it, I agree that you shouldn't blast that out to the world. I, that makes sense to me, right? Because if that deal falls apart, then that becomes the new price of the house, right? If word is out there to the masses, then no one's going to give you 800 ever again or 789 or 790 or 795. They're going to give you 750, right? I get that. I don't know if I'm so sure it works when you're over asking price. It does. Let's talk it through. So if you're at 800 and you list it and you get, let's just for the sake of simplicity, say you get two offers. I don't, you know, maybe you got 10, but let's just say you got two and one's 825 and one's 850. And you take the 850 offer. Why is it bad for the world to know you have 850? The 825 guy is going to understand why they didn't get it. And maybe if they want it, they have to go to 850. If you relist it, I mean, the market spoke at that point. I guess maybe there's an argument that if you relist it, you could go more. But aren't you going to have multiple offers again? Isn't the market going to speak again? 
is the belief that, well, if I tell people I got 850, then maybe the next time we go back on the market, if it dies, I won't get 900. But if you're going to get multiple offers again, if 900's in the mix, it'll be in the mix, right? Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, I got a hot off the press story for you because I just checked my email to see if something closed and it closed 20 minutes ago. I listed something in Sherwood for 559 and we got a whole bunch of offers and we accepted one for 600 and we got all the way to the finish line and the we were waiting and waiting and waiting for these HOA docs, which just never seemed to arrive. They arrived these buyers backed out unconditionally because of something in the HOA docs. So we went back on the market again and we got offers way north of that. Like the highest one was 660 and we accepted 600. We got 660. We got a handful at six. What was your previous offer, Joe? It was 600. And then you, you, so you went back on the market. Now you got 660. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So Listed at 559. Obviously, mul- obviously multiple offers. Yeah. Right? We previously okay. accepted 600. That crashed. We went back on the market. And then we started getting all these six and a quarters and as high as 660. But the six and a quarter one had the strongest and best terms. At this point, we wanted someone who's going to perform and mm-hmm. close the thing. Mm-hmm. And it was 25 grand more. So we like to get all of the documentation taken care of upfront. So we sent disclosures, we sent advisories, we sent everything, including all of the HOA docs. And on one of those docs, there was a piece of paper from the title company that had the old price, 600 Mm -hmm. grand. And these new buyers looked at it and it's like, wow, we came in 25 grand higher than what they accepted before. And that almost killed the deal right there. But then I showed them kind of a redacted. But you're in a new multiple offer situation. Yeah, you are. The point is, information is king. And the more information people have, the more they can base their decision. If a house comes back on the market and I know they accepted an offer for 850, I know there's no reason for me to go over 850 because they accepted it before. If it's a multiple offer situation, that may change. Now it's not what the seller is willing to accept. I got to beat the next guy, right? But as long I mean, as no one- Technically, why it seems weird to me is the seller is willing to accept the list price and you're over the list price. So we know the seller is willing to accept less, but you, in a multiple offer situation, you are vying to get the house. And so you're doing what it takes to get the house. It it is different. I, I under your story is really good. It's a good story. And, and I get where that could happen, what you, your scenario could happen. But the argument against that is like, look, but didn't you just say you had a 660 offer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's that's what more do you need to say? Well, okay. Yeah, that guy, those guys were an escrow at 600, but this guy's willing to give six six sixty. Right. So so your 625 is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well. So the thing that we need to decipher as brokers is if you call and say, hey, Joe, I'm listing the house three houses away from the one that you have pending, and I'm having a hell of a time finding comps, You know, could you tell me anything about it? I'd probably tell you everything about it and be completely transparent because you're not calling because you have a buyer and you want to yeah. like yeah. be a backup offer. 
you were at checking least be, at least be comps. vague, right? At least be vague. Don't be don't be tight lipped and say, nope, can't tell you anything. Say, say, yeah, we're quite a ways over off asking, you know, you know we're about 10 percent over. At, I, you know, we're well north of 800. Give some guidance, right? Yeah. Just yeah. so just yeah. so that there, there's there, you're being helpful. Goes back to that. Keep going. Well, yeah. It's so you you tell the person, you know, you're hot, you're cold. You kind of give yeah. them an idea of the price and you give them an idea of the terms. And the people I know really well, I would probably be completely transparent, but Absolutely. I'd never, never admit yeah. that, especially on a live podcast, you know, 20,000 subscribers. Yeah. And but I would probably, you if you called term. me and wanted to know for yeah. comp purposes, I'd probably tell you the the whole story. We had this many offers. This is what it looked like. This is what we're dealing with. Yep. I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. And I'm not saying put it in the private comments or public comments. I And I agree with you. If you know the agent that's calling you really well, you're probably going to share a lot. And if you know someone less, but at least give them some warm, cold, hot, you know, north of this, well north of this. Sure. Um, just sure. just barely north of this. I mean, give them something so that you can help them in their world, their sellers, based on, you know, you know, what is a real time comp happening right there. So this post from Jessica Wang, which was just, uh, you know, I she was she was gr- griping that she's just getting a lot of those. And, and there was a lot of good feedback here. There's a lot of back and forth. And a lot were defending the practice, saying like, look, we're just trying to help our clients the best we can in this crazy market. And we don't want to just blindly go off of, if it's the exact same house three doors down and you listed at 800 and you went pending in two days, in, in a historically normal market, you'd go, okay, we're going to price it at 800. But what if they're pending at 900, right? Maybe you shouldn't price at 800. So that's what people are trying to trying to learn. And I think we could have a little bit more grace there and, and be a, a little bit more helpful. For the purposes of comps, the same people that for common courtesy that take the time to email an appraiser, the terms and concessions and multiple offers and, and what the seller contributed for closing costs or repairs. Those are the same people that are going to help the other broker for the purposes of finding value on a different property. Now, this isn't a blanket rule for everybody. Like if I have a listing and I have offers coming in, I'm not going to tell anybody what the offers are. It's like, just come in with your highest and best. And every once in a while, someone says, hey, you know what? You're 800,000 and my people turn into a pumpkin at 875. Do you have anything north of that? Because if so, I'm not even going to bother writing it. Mm-hmm. And if I believe that that's the truth, and I believe that's not a measuring stick of them knowing how what I'm holding so far, I'll say, yeah, don't even worry about it at that mm-hmm. point. But you know, everybody has to have a fair playing field when it comes to offers. But when it comes to finding value and as difficult as it is, we should all be helping one another figure out comps and we should all be helping appraisers. And guess what? That appraiser that you constantly send feedback to might be your appraiser one of these days on one of your transactions and mm-hmm. them, you know, he or she remembering that you always take the time to give them detailed feedback. It, it might help you in the future. Who knows? But mm-hmm. I think it just helps us all. I like that expression, Joe. My my clients turn into a pumpkin at 875. That I'm going to use that one. <laughs> hey, let's keep things moving. 
what one more post that we're going to talk about, and then we might just do a quick discussion about the, the general market. This one is about Lake Oswego. Grady Nelson posted this one a little while back, and it's basically court rules public can access Oswego Lake, Lakewood Bay. And there was a lot of comments here, you know, some some for it, some against it. It's an interesting conversation because it it it's a big deal. I actually reached out to a couple experts on this, both who live on the lake. Justin Harnish, I talked to him this morning. I talked to Joel Lewis as well. So, because I wanted to get the latest scuttlebug on what's going on with this. So let me give a little backstory here. So apparently in like 2012, there was this movement called Occupy Lake Oswego, where a bunch of people just, and they were doing, you know, Occupy Wall Street and all sorts of other stuff, but they decided we're all just going to go to Lake Oswego and use it as a public lake. So the city passed an ordinance saying it's illegal to access the lake from a park, which is Millennium Park is right there downtown. So this court case is challenging that. It's challenging that you can't access the lake through the park. And so apparently a judge ruled that that is indeed the case. And what the judge said was, this is a navigable, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's it's a waterway that you can navigate in Oregon, or it, it started out as that. Therefore, this it's public and you can't restrict access to it. The history of Lake Oswego, a lot of Lake Oswego is man-made. Lakewood Bay is actually entirely man-made, right? Yeah. The original body of water that was there was very small, and then they enlarged it, including all of Lakewood Bay. So there are things that can be challenged about this because Millennium Park is on Lakewood Bay, which wouldn't exist there if the HOA hadn't gone in and enlarged the lake. So kind of what I, and I, and I appreciate the, the time that, that Justin and Joel both took today to, to educate me a little bit on this. The big takeaway that I, I got out of it, it's not yet decided. There's some type of hearing in July where I don't know if it's the same judge or a different judge. We'll have a little bit more clarity and another decision on this. And then if it is saying the, the lake is going to be public, then there's going to be appeals for years and years to come, right? In the courts. One thing that I think is safe to say, whatever happens with this, there's never going to be motorized boat access to the public on the lake, partly because there aren't loading docks set up for the public. And the lake does require you to clean your boat anytime it's removed and brought back in. And that's like a $250 cost. So between those two things, you're just never going to see a time where there's going to be a bunch of people buzzing around Lake Oswego that don't live on Lake Oswego in motorboats. So what really could be in question then, if you take out the motorboat access, is paddle boards, canoes, swimming. And if that were to be the case, you'd have to access it through Millennium Park, which in my opinion, or, you know, as I was talking this through, it seems like Lakewood Bay could become busier with those people. 
But the likelihood that somebody in a paddleboard or canoe is going to go all the way out to the main lake, which is quite a trek. I mean, there might be a couple hardcore people that would do that, but it, it doesn't seem likely that the entire lake is going to be overrun with a bunch of swimmers and paddleboarders. More likely what would happen if this was to ever come about would be Lakewood Bay would have a little bit more activity there. But I mean, some other challenges, you know, that have come up is parking restrooms. Like, you know, there's, there's a little bit more logistical challenges to this. So it's definitely interesting and it's worth following and it's undecided. It's still kind of in, you know, in a back and forth, something big is going to happen in July, but do you have any thoughts on that, Joe? Yeah. So since it's a human-made lake, right? I don't know if you can say man-made anymore. So let's call it <laughs> human-made lake. And the owners of lakefront property pay exorbitant taxes. They have other fees, brand yeah. new HOA fees, brand new lakefront people get hit with the sewer line fee. So they have a vested interest in this lake, which is made by humans that all of their houses are around. Now, I know enough about the law to be dangerous. I have a riverfront property and the difference in public access is navigable or non-navigable, right? Can a motorized vessel go up and down it? Mine is a non-navigable river, but on navigable rivers, the public have access sort of in that area between the lowest of low tides and the highest of high tides. They can pull their boat in and, and hang out there. Well, on a non-navigable river, we own to the middle of the river, which means people can't go on our property on the bank and they can't walk down the, the river if they wanted because technically we own it. And being kind of the guy I am, I'm like, hey, look, if some grandparents want to take their niece or their granddaughter and, and grandson to the water and throw some rocks in and someone wants to fly fish. God love them. Go ahead. You know, go on my property. I'm not going to kick you off. And I would find day after day after day, just a dozen cans of, of empty beer cans and little styrofoam containers that held worms even though it's fly fishing only, they're they're fishing with bait and bags of chips and cigarette butts and just so much shit all over the river on the river bank. And like, I'm pretty protective about that. I'm the kind of guy that when I go fly fishing, I have a bag that I keep in my vest and I'll pull it out and I'll just throw other people's crap in it. So when I leave, I leave it a little bit better than when I got there. And when I saw that you open something up to the public and they don't respect it, they come, they fish, they have a picnic, leave all their shit and leave. Then all of a sudden you understand the old crotchety guy shaking his fist saying, hey, it's private property. Get off my property. And these guys are like, man, what a jerk. And it's like, no, we have like 50 instances of us letting people come hang out and have to clean up after them. So. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing if the lake remained to just the people that live on the lake or close enough by that they have their own easements. I mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is, I think this is going to be an uphill battle 
because if you live on the lake, you've done a couple good things in your life and made some money and you got some firepower behind. Where are all the attorneys? They probably live on the damn lake. <laughs> but people fighting it are going to be people on the lake because you have, you know, great realtors, you have doctors, you have lawyers, you have people with money fighting to protect what was once theirs. And now it's kind of open up to everybody. But there is no denying if you do open it up to the public, you're going to get more trash. You're going to get more noise. Totally. It's, it's just yeah. going to happen. And, you know, Grady, he's he's with Soldera Properties and, and he doesn't live on the lake, but he has a boat and he goes out constantly on the Willamette and very in tune with all the laws of filling up your ballasts for, you know, wakeboarding and water skiing and, and anything boating he knows about and he's a great guy i don't know his stance on this about the lake but if you make a land uh, a landlocked human-made lake and built a community around it it should be for that community I, who's to say that people can't go out to wilsonville to randy sebastian's development remember and he had that little lake and then there's an area that is uh willamette too I mean, who's to say that the public can't just go there and whoop it up? I mean, that would kind of destroy that whole feel. Yeah. Justin said the the judge kind of made a, a call that had no precedent. They said that because initially it was. Well, remember, too, Joe, Lake Oswego is fed by the Twalton River. So there yeah. is a component of public you know, exposure of a body of water. Also, I believe that the decision they made was it's. Though most of the lake is man-made or human-made, there was a portion of it that was an existing navigable body of water. And so their interpretation is that translates to it. It's now entirely navigable versus being human-made. It's very complicated. I mean, I mean, there was no two ways about it. There's a lot to unpack here, probably more than we could ever do in this podcast. But it is an interesting thing. I'm with you, Joe. I would absolutely prefer that it stay this the way it is today and that there isn't just a bunch of mullet wearing, perhaps blue ribbon beer drinking, you know, canoers out there. I'm kidding, of course. I agree. It's a homeowners association. I see it the way you see it, right? Like no different than if you have a homeowners association with a rec center, right? Not everybody gets to go use the rec center. Well, this is their their rec center is is Lake Oswego. And so it's definitely something to keep an eye on and we'll it'll be something to follow. Hey, real quick, and we gotta we gotta wind this down, Joe. Hey, what are you seeing in the market in the last month or so? It's correcting. It's yeah. it's correcting. And you know, it's funny that if you look at the first rule of fight club is don't talk about fight club and the rule of real estate is don't talk about a changing market, right? Well, there's a point where all realtors are sort of forced to acquiesce that the market's changing. And when there's so much media and so much news and so much statistics that people are making less money now and title is being transferred a little less now, that people who were the naysayers are like, well, yeah, it's correcting, but it needed to, but it's not going to be like 2008, right? Because if they keep ignoring it and saying it's a fabulous time, people are going to start thinking of them as dishonest because everything else says we're correcting. So it's obvious to just about everybody that 
it is correcting. Now the question is how much? And mm-hmm. just right before we went live a couple of days ago, Jordan Matten said, "Hey, you know, what are you guys seeing? How much do you think our inventory is going to be?" I do see it increasing. I know we have a shortage of supply, so that's artificially going to keep the demand there. But if you're at mid fives for interest rates and buyers are getting exhausted of making offers and being one of 10, one of 12, one of 15, and they're on eight and oh, and they, and do they really want to look for a ninth house to make an offer on? I think some people are tapping out and just like the refis have tapped out. I think there's a lot of people that are saying, you know what, why don't we just put 150 grand into remodeling our house and hunker down rather than go try and sell and be a buyer in this market. So we're mm-hmm. correcting. And you know, the beauty of podcasts is you can go back a year and hear all of our predictions like on this podcast. And we kind of stayed the course, right? It's not like you look at the weather and it says, hey, it's going to be 75 degrees. And then you like, it's going to be 75. I mean, the real magic is predicting what it's going to be in advance. And a lot of people are a little allergic to doing that because heaven forbid, what if I'm wrong? But we all knew that there was going to be a saturation, the REO, which is mind boggling. Because if, if you're not a fat cat in your house right now, you've done some a lot of things wrong or a lot of things have gone wrong in your life. But REOs are going to go up, foreclosures. I think we're going to build inventory, but it's going to be crappy inventory because mm-hmm. when the market stops and flattens out, it's impossible to identify trends at the peak or at the bottom, right? Because they're still doing their comps from like a week ago and in a month ago and two months ago. So when it adjusts and flattens out, all of the sellers will still be on that appreciation trajectory. And we're going to build a lot of crappy overpriced inventory and we will see price reductions and that'll be the start of it. Is it yeah, supposed it was- to be a good market for good realtors? Absolutely. But yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. There was a um, new home sales cratered yesterday. There was a, this was new construction that went pending in the month of April was way under the expectations. And it was, it was a massive miss and that's kind of a forward indicator, right? So that was eye opening. I think we're going to start to see more of that on the resale world. In my personal book of business, I mean, I'm going to tell you, we took like five or six homes on the market last week and most of them got an offer, but several of them only had one offer, right? And I was texting Brian Belairs about this. We were talking earlier in the week and I, I mentioned that to him. He goes, yeah, but those are the good homes. The good homes are getting offers. We were in a market six months ago or a year ago. We were in a market where the ugly homes were getting multiple offers, right? Everything was just selling. And that's something Tucker and I used to, Tucker used to say that a lot. When, when he was on the podcast, you know, when the market changes and slows down, the class A homes still do well, but the, it's the B's, C's and D's, you know, the ones with stairs to the front door, busy road, you know, they are the ones that really suffer. And so I, I think there's a little of that going on where, you know, good homes, not outrageously priced are selling probably with less offers in most cases. I would say one thing that is surprising me, and I might be alone, I haven't talked to other agents who have high-end listings, but it feels like that market's quiet to me. 
And and that, if you recall, Joe, when we had our expert power female panel, yeah, we were all kind of saying we we expected the lower end to get hit hard by the higher rates. I think because you know because you would you know they're putting less down and they're stretching a little bit further. But maybe what's happening to Wall Street is now affecting the higher end as well. People feel like they have less wealth. Their stock portfolios are, are you know, shrinking. Heaven forbid what's happening to, to cryptocurrency and, and beyond. So it, it feels to me like some of my higher end listings have gotten a little bit more quiet dramatically all of a sudden. The lower end might be feeling it some... But the mid-range pricing seems to still be the, maybe the strongest because a lot of the listings we took on the market last weekend were, you know, they were in that seven, eight, nine hundred, six hundred range, and they all seem to do pretty good. Not ten offers, not even five. Like the one that had the most offers was three, and then several of them had you know just one offer. One of my buyers agents yesterday in a meeting we had said she she was like it was crazy. I made an offer over the weekend. I asked for a seller credit for closing costs and we're doing inspections and we're going to negotiate inspections. It's, it's like the old days, right? So wow. imagine that. And I think a lot of us agree. It was too crazy. The market was too crazy. I think some, a lot of us feel good about the direction it's going. She must've um, had one hell of a love letter. <laughs> <laughs> the way I've explained it to a couple people recently is like the market was going hundred miles an hour and now it's going 75. Now, what will be interesting and time will tell is does it keep slowing down and does it dramatically slow down? Does it go to 50 miles an hour, you know, moving forward or does it have more of what we would call a soft landing? The good news in that regards is interest rates have calmed down so far. We're in the mid low fives. When we did our expert panel with our three powerhouse ladies, we were kind of the higher fives. And we were wondering if we'd be sitting here today or you know next month in the sevens. So far, that isn't happening. And I think that's really good, great news for housing. So yeah, there you have it. Any final thoughts? If you're a realtor and you want to stay in the business, be as professional and educated as you possibly can and make yourself inflation proof. And that's not a Joeism. That's a Warren Buffett quote. I'm paraphrasing but be the absolute best you can possibly be in your field. You will be inflation proof. And the number of realtors active today will be cut in half in the next three to five years. That's my prediction. Yeah. Yeah. Warren Buffett's always been a guy of great wisdom. I remember during the great recession, he said the same thing. He said, whenever the economy tanks, the best thing you can do is be a good earner. And, and that's beyond real estate, right? Be a good earner. Be, if you're a doctor, be the, be the best doctor. If you're a realtor, be the best realtor. He even said, it was pretty interesting. He said, I don't care what currency we're trading, you'll make the most of it. If the US dollar goes into the tank and we start trading shark teeth, be the guy that is the best you can be so that you're making the most shark teeth, right? And the same applies towards inflation, right? I mean, the people I worry the most for with regards to inflation, to be honest with you, are the people that are retired and out of the 
market, right? Out of the earning market, because they they only have so many dollars allotted to live off for the rest of their life. And they're not getting the benefit of making higher wages. As realtors, we're making larger commissions because home prices are up, right? So we have an inherent built-in raise. Every time home prices go up, we get a built-in raise. We don't even have to ask for the extra money. You know, other people in other industries, Target and, and Walmart, they came out with horrible earnings reports because prices, their costs are going up and faster than they can raise their prices. So we don't even have to raise our prices. They just naturally go up as the housing prices go up. So we're in a pretty fortunate industry in that regards. But I thousand percent agree with you. Be a good earner in any economy. You'll you'll do okay. All right, let's wrap this up. That's a wrap. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode number one forty three. Make sure you like, subscribe, tell your friends, and we have a, a great guest next month, which you guys are all going to love. Announcing some huge news. That's all the teaser you get. See you next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Portland Real Estate Podcast, Oregon and Washington's number one show for cutting edge real estate discussions. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the members of Masters in Real Estate, a private and exclusive Facebook group and the number one source for all real estate topics. Thanks for being there, gang. I love you. Finally, I want to thank our faithful listeners. Without an audience, we're just two guys talking to each other. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so the new episodes automatically come to you. Make it great.